The reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There, in front of him, was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Mike, can I pray for you as you come and preach to us? Father God, I pray that you would speak through Mike now. Lord, open our ears to hear you speak through him. And may our lives be changed so that they more show us and show the world who Jesus is. Amen. 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 Well, good morning. Um, it's, a, it's an encouraging moment for me to be with you all this morning. It's great to look around and see all the faces here and uh, know that there's such strength in the kingdom of God. Um, the battle is on. The battle is on for the hearts of human beings everywhere. That is the battle that rages. And... Um, uh, I was, uh, I was um, struck recently by the uh, origins of the word encourage. Um, Mrs. Davis, in French, encourager, cœur, right? So it's from cœur, from heart. So to encourage is to build up one another's heart. I wonder if you just take two minutes, one minute, just with someone next to you or in front of you or behind you, just to encourage one another, just share a moment of encouragement. The Ian and Alison Coulter have shared with me a moment of great encouragement. They've become grandparents. Um, <laughs> congratulations. 
Uh, all, all I can say is grandparents look younger all the time. That's a, or maybe I'm just getting older. Um, just please, in, for just it's something God's done in your life or something you've seen happening or something you've noticed, something that's encouraged you. Maybe it's a word of encouragement for the person that you're talking to. Whatever, however you feel you want to share it, let's encourage one another just for a moment now. Please, go ahead, talk to someone next to you. And please be, please be gently finishing that. It's wonderful. There's no stopping you. <laughs> There's no stopping you. That in itself is an encouragement. Um, well done. Well done. We join um, Luke's gospel account of the life and work of Jesus at a moment when the battle, this battle, uh, the battle, his battle in particular with the Pharisees, is at its peak. Uh, we've had miraculous healings, compelling teachings. We've had a turning upside down of the world of the day. No one has any seen, ever seen anything like this before. Pharisees, teachers of the law, who um, have the community in some sort of stranglehold, are shaken. We join the story with Jesus eating at the house of a prominent Pharisee, and you might like to keep the passage open, Luke 14, uh, 1 to 14, page 1047 in your Bibles. Uh, Luke tells us verse 1, it's at the house of a prominent Pharisee. Jesus is in enemy territory, because for whatever reason, as we'll see in a moment, the, the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders of the day are at odds with Jesus. This is the battle that's going on. Most of you We'll be familiar with that. We're going to look at it a bit more carefully this morning. Jesus is in enemy territory. There's something we need to know about Jesus, which is I find fascinating, is that he picks fights. He picks fights. It's really interesting. He does not shy away. He does not shy away. It's a wonderful... I was flirting with the idea of playing this for you. Then trouble is you play one video in a 20-minute sermon. It's four minutes long, and everyone remembers the video. But if you... If you and and, not, and not, not the message. But if you... Um, if you, if you ever watch, uh, if you ever watch the, the great movie Braveheart, there's a moment where he just he just decides he's going to uh, uh, Wallace, the leader of the Scots, just decides he's going to pick a fight with the English army. He just goes up, he just he just looks, he says, "This is enough of this," and he gets on his horse and he just he just rides out and picks a fight, and then all the Scots have to join him and they go into battle. Jesus does this. He does this. I'm going to go and have and have the Sabbath meal which is a, a, a proper you know, religious event and, and is done with ceremony. I'm going to have that at the house of not just any Pharisee, but one of the leaders of the Pharisees. So everybody's watching him. So it's like, right, the game is afoot. Okay? Jesus picks a fight. He is not scared. In fact, it's in these moments of fight, in these moments of battle, that the kingdom will advance. He's being closely watched, Luke says. They're building a case against him. This is the case that will eventually take him to the cross. But, of course, the cross is what we're going to need for the kingdom of God to come. So it's extraordinary. Jesus has the whole thing, the whole thing planned. He's being watched, and they're building the case against him. The battle lines are firmly drawn. So it looks like a game of sort of challenge and response. Right, the Pharisee, he's going to challenge the Pharisees, they're going to respond, he's going to win, or they're going to challenge him, he's going to respond, he's going to win. But actually underneath the real battle is the battle for Jesus' life, and ultimately the battle for the kingdom of God on earth. And this is what I mean by the battle for our hearts, because the kingdom of God comes through the hearts of people. 
The kingdom of God comes through the hearts of people. If J. John were here, he would say, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Exactly like that, George, wouldn't he? Right. So, in his absence, it's still true. The kingdom of God comes through the hearts of people. And as the Sabbath meal unfolds with the Pharisees, two distinct discussions emerge. And I want to look first at what actually happens, what an onlooker would have seen. And then we'll understand, I think, why Luke's put these two together and why we teach on the two at once. Seemingly very distinct moments. So first, the healing. So in front of Jesus, verse 2, is a man with an illness called dropsy. The gospel calls it dropsy. It's nowadays known as edema. I hesitate to do this medical thing with all the great medics in the, in the church, right? I'm looking around frantically for sort of Tom Peck, Richard Roop, Hugh Fox, Mike Reynolds. Anyway, if I get it wrong, guys, sorry. But this is water retention, fluid on the body. It's, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not um, uh, life-threatening as far as I know, but it's disfiguring, it's very frustrating, it's very disheartening. And in a superstitious culture of the day, this man will be, will be largely pushed to one side. It's the third, it's about to be a healing, and it's the third time that Luke records a healing on the Sabbath. And it's a major underlying reason for this particular battle line, as we'll see. Now, we aren't told how the man comes to be in front of Jesus, but we do know that people take risks to get in front of Jesus. Jesus has built up a reputation for doing extraordinary things of physical healing and and spiritual healing, and people take risks, like the guys who cut the hole in the roof and lowered their friend. People take risks to go to great lengths, and somehow, at the house of a prominent Pharisee, the, the, it's, like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like somehow you, know, you, you find yourself in front of Jesus in the, in the house of a cabinet minister in England. He, this guy's suddenly got himself there, and he's in front of Jesus. And Jesus, everyone's looking at him. And then everyone's looking at Jesus because it's very clear what's going to happen. Jesus is going to heal him on the Sabbath, which constitutes working on the Sabbath, which is against the law, think the Pharisees. So what quickly... Uh, what's happening here quickly becomes an astonishing episode because the healing itself becomes secondary for for everyone except for the the man with the disease, of course. And Luke simply records, verse 4, taking hold of the man, Jesus healed him and sent him on his way. Just like that. I take hold of you, I heal you, I send you on your way. Wow. Wow. So the healing is like, done. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. Nice one. Cheers. What's really going on here? is the battle between the Holy Spirit of Jesus and the spirit of the Pharisees. They don't need to say anything, and they don't say anything, because they've learned by now that there's no point in saying anything, because Jesus has them tied up, hook, line, and sinker, because Jesus has the truth. Jesus will always have the better of them. But Jesus, as the gospel writers record in many places, knows what they're thinking. So they don't need to speak. He responds to what they're thinking. And he says to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I know what you're thinking. And they then answer, so he's one. So he takes this precious man, this image bearer of the living God, and restores him to fullness of life. And the man goes on his way. And Jesus rounds off this episode with the silent and doubtless despairing Pharisees 
and says, so if one of you has a child or even an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Silence. Two no. It's all over. It's all over. The healing's done, and Jesus is one again. And the Pharisees like, it, it's, it's, it's anger, it's frustration, it's hatred. And then comes the second discussion, which seems at first sight unrelated to the first. This is the, that was the healing, this is the teaching. Jesus notices that people are vying for the place of honor at the table. So I imagine, I, I'm not an expert in this culture, but I imagine that you know, it's, it's quite ceremonial. It's, this, it's the religious Sabbath. It's, it, there's probably cushions at the table. And people are, they want to sit next to someone senior. They want to be close close to the host, who's probably the senior one present, and it's like moving up the table. So you want to be at the top end versus the bottom end, and there's that sort of thing going on. I want to sit next to someone important. And Jesus, with typical courage and fearlessness, he sees this, and he challenges them on it. And he names the behavior, and he actually teaches them, and therefore teaches us, that grasping at things for ourselves is ultimately counterproductive. That's his message. He says, you can grasp if you like, but it's not going to work for you. This is the extraordinary Alice through the looking glass nature of the kingdom. That is what the kingdom's like, isn't it? The host, says Jesus, will come and ask you to step down, if you do that, in favor of a senior person who he's already invited that you didn't know about. And then you'll only be humiliated. You'll be asked to step down. If we seize the crown for ourselves, we're risking a fall. The humble will be exalted. The exalted will be humbled. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. It, it, time and time again, this is the message of the gospel. Seize it for yourself, you'll lose it. Be prepared to lose it, you'll get it. You'll be rewarded in the kingdom of heaven. You'll be rewarded in the kingdom of heaven. You'll be repaid, Jesus says in verse 14, at the resurrection of the righteous. And he takes the teaching further. When we throw our own parties, we are not just to invite our close friends or family in an endless social world, but we are to bless the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. He is teaching humility. Jesus is teaching humility. So why these two challenges? Why do we have these two challenges together? Why does Luke put them together? The healing on the Sabbath and the places of honor at the table. What's, what have the two got in common? Why do they happen at the same place in the same meal and both get reported by Luke? What's the binding theme? Well, I think they're taught together because they're both prime examples of the most confrontational spirit that Jesus faced in all his work. And it's a theme across his three years. And it's a spirit that we still face today. And it's called the religious spirit. This is the religious spirit, and I'm going to name it today, and we need to name it, and we need to know it, because these spirits are dangerous if you don't know them, and they're dangerous if you don't name them, but when they're known and named, they lose a lot of their power, and I want to take some time to look at this, because I think it is the most, or it's certainly among the most pernicious of all the spirits unleashed on the earth in Jesus' time and in our time today. Now, I'm sure that Probably everyone here, or certainly many of you, will have noticed that Jesus' confrontations, the big confrontations in the Gospels, were not primarily with unbelievers or criminals or outcasts, but they were with the religious leaders of the day. Jesus 
big confrontations with the religious leaders of the day. Why? Why? Now, of course, let, let me just be really clear. It's not true to say all Pharisees were bad people. Not at all. Not at all. You only have to read into the encounter with Nicodemus in John 3 to see that. Uh, some of these men were wonderful teachers. They'd held the spirit of the nation together in the face of the Roman invasion. They were true to the word of God as they saw it. Uh, there were some very, very good men. But it's clear that something was going on with the religious leaders and with the Pharisees something that was implacably and violently opposed to the kingdom message of Christ. And Jesus, in turn, devoted a huge amount of time and energy to exposing the Spirit and dealing with it. And since the Bible is not a book of exceptions, we should ask why. Because the Bible is designed to tell us how to live. So what is Jesus teaching us here? So this religious spirit, it's a devious thing, and it's created to mislead. It is the brilliant counterfeit. It looks so like a good thing. It can sound something like this. I go to church. I live by high standards. I don't do alcohol. I don't do drugs. I stand for law and order. I'm fair in all my dealings. There's nothing wrong with any of that. See, it's already at work, isn't it? It's fine. I can stand up here with my hand on my heart and say that, apart from perhaps the alcohol bit, but I don't do too much alcohol, so I'm okay. So here's the thing. If I were Satan, if I were the enemy of humankind, and I wanted to create and unleash a spirit that would pull people away from the kingdom of God, I would design exactly this spirit. I would design a spirit that looks like the real thing, that looks like the spirit of Christ, but actually isn't. In its last 5%, 10%, it's exactly counter. But for most people, the 90 is what counts. And you see it, and you think, yeah, that looks very good. In the, in the, in the days before, in the, days before this, the economy of the UAE took off, and I used to go to Dubai with warships in the Navy, you would find everywhere imitations. You, you go and buy, and the sailors used to call them not Lacoste t-shirts, but low-cost t-shirts. And you go and you buy 10 low-cost t-shirts for 10 pounds. And they look just like the real thing. Crocodiles, that's just amazing, real thing. Of course, three months later, the crocodile would be peeling off, and six months later, you'd have holes in the seams. But it was only a quid, so it didn't matter. But it looks just like the real thing, except it's not. It's not at all. And it's actually extremely dangerous. And it's brilliant for two reasons. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant, clever work of the enemy for two reasons. First of all, if I deploy this spirit, countless people will think, sorry, sorry, Satan thinks, sorry, if I deploy this spirit, countless people will think they're being good, they're doing well, they're earning their way to heaven. So I start to, if I'm possessed of the spirit, I start to take pride in my performance and my behavior and my achievements. I remember a man saying to me on the train many years ago, he was asking about my faith. I can't remember how we had the conversation. didn't really know him very well, but, but we, we were talking about, about the Christian faith. He said, I, I, I can't get my head around this Christian faith. He said, you, you guys believe that you, it's only through Jesus that you can get to heaven. I said, yeah, exactly. So I'm glad you know that. And he said, well, he said, I've got these friends. He said, they're fantastic. 
So the man and the woman, they're in their 50s. He said, they are just amazing people. He said, they do really great things. He said, they look after people. He said, they're just lovely people. I said, great. He said, yeah, they're not Christians. I said, okay. I said, I said he said, well, does that mean they're thrown out? I said, look, it's between them and God, right? But ultimately, it's got nothing to do with what they do unless that's a, a, an outworking of their relationship with Christ. In the end, we all need Christ. We can't do it on our own. And he was just looking at the boxes they ticked and thinking, if only I could tick those boxes, I'd be all right. And it's precisely that that is the religious spirit. It's precisely that. Because if I'm possessed of the religious spirit, I will not submit to Christ, and the kingdom will not come in my heart. And if the kingdom doesn't come in my heart, it won't come in my actions. And if it doesn't come in my actions, it won't come in the world. This will all stay on the surface. It's ultimately self-serving. It leaves no room for the deep devotedness that God requires of us. And eventually, it steals our soul. Eventually, it steals our soul. And in the immortal words of Freddie Mercury, another one bites the dust. That's how it works. Another one bites the dust. Another one taken over by this achievement, do good things, look good, present well. So Satan wins. The other way Satan wins is, hey, if I deploy this spirit, people outside the church looking in will see the counterfeit spirit and mistake it for the kingdom. And then when it shows its true self, rather than blaming the religious spirit, the onlookers will denigrate the true faith and blame the kingdom of God. Now, do you follow that? Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that demonically brilliant? It happens all the time. Look at the horrific sex abuse scandal surrounding the Catholic Church. We all, everyone in this room knows that that has got nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy of epic proportions. And it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. But onlookers look in and they say, ah, you see, the church, you see, it's just full of child abusers. So it's, it's not to be trusted. And with the church, they say, Jesus, and the whole thing, and the Bible, and it's all not to be trusted. And they point their fingers at the church. Because actually, what was in the church going on at that time, it's the religious spirit. Because I present well, but behind the scenes I'm abusing children. Or whatever it is, that's a particularly horrific example, but whatever it is I'm doing that's behind the scenes, it's not of the kingdom. It's not of the kingdom. But how do you expect people outside the church to know the difference when the counterfeit looks so similar to the real thing? Isn't it demonically genius? There are countless examples, countless examples, less dramatic than, than the child abuse. Um, do you recognize this phrase? What I see in the church is hypocrisy. Yeah? Oh, what I see in the church all the time is hypocrisy. Sure it is. Sure it is. But it comes from the religious spirit, my friends. I see the church. I think the church is irrelevant now. Church is irrelevant. Sure it is. Church is irrelevant because we've forgotten how to interact with our needy world. So if we forget how to interact with the world, of course the church becomes irrelevant. But that's the religious spirit. I remember a horrifying quote from the great book, um, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey's great book of 20 years ago. There's a woman in, in, who's destitute, forced to turn to prostitution, forced to turn her child, daughter, over to prostitution as well. And someone asks her, has she ever tried the church? And she says, the church? Why on earth would I want to try the church? Isn't that shocking? Isn't that shocking? 
So I just want to say, by the way, to you this morning, if you've come here in need, you're in the right place. And well done for coming. If you've come here in need, you're in the right place. Jesus will meet with you here. Kingdom come. Kingdom come. I find myself frequently in conversation where someone says, oh, yeah, I'm not religious at all. I had one of these conversations in Hong Kong on Tuesday. A young woman said to me, I, I'm not religious. She said, I was, she'd asked about my journey. I shared her some things. God was in that journey. She said, um, she said so, so you, when, when you talk when you're about hearing the voice of God, do you hear it? Do you hear it live? I said, yes, I do. And she said, that's really interesting because I have a 14-year-old son who started hearing the voice of God live. I said, that's fantastic. We started talking. She said, I'm not religious. I said, nor am I. She said, ooh. Ah. <laughs> it's quite gripping, isn't it? I'm not religious. I'm a spiritual man. I'm a spiritual man. My heart belongs to God. I live for the kingdom, but I'm not religious. And it's really important that we have clarity on the difference between religious and kingdom, the religious spirit and the kingdom of God. How do we spot it in operation? How do we spot it in operation? It manifests in very many ways, but I want to give you four. Because if we can spot and name the religious spirit, we're halfway home. The first is, it champions form and appearance over the truth. It champions form and appearance over the truth. So, God says to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The religious spirit says, is all about the outward appearance. Get the outward appearance right, everyone will love you, or everyone will be impressed. So it's possible to go to church every Sunday and be nowhere near the kingdom of God. It's even possible to be a member of a small group and be nowhere near the kingdom of God. Harder, but possible. The second manifestation, there are many, by the way, but I'm just going to give you my four favorites. The second, the religious spirit is judgmental and discouraging. By contrast, Jesus invariably encourages encourages, grows the heart. Jesus invariably encourages and builds us up. If the voice in your ear is grinding you down, that is the religious spirit. That is not the voice of God. If you find yourself putting someone else down, either to their face or behind their back, or even just in your own thinking, that is the religious spirit. Be careful. That is the religious spirit. Okay? And by the way, if you're hearing from the religious spirit, there's nothing wrong with you. Everyone does. Right? It's not like, ooh, I've got it, like measles. We, right? We all, we all get the religious spirit, right? The voice in the ear. Okay. It's founded on fear, number three, it's founded on fear and not love. So when fear is at play, when fear is at play, when we're operating from old patterns that make us anxious and unwilling, unwilling to step out, that make us reactive and accusing and blaming, that's the religious spirit. When we're operating out of selfless giving, we're, we're offering praise first to others before ourselves. We're putting others' needs ahead of our own. That is the kingdom. That is the kingdom. And it flows in the spirit of God. From fear to sonship, that is love. And then the fourth um, telltale sign is that the religious spirit comes from and leads to scarcity, while the spirit of God is all about abundance. Religious spirit is about scarcity, the spirit of God's about abundance. Scarcity is the zero-sum game. So that's, you get smaller so I can get larger. I get a bigger piece of the pie, that leaves you with less of the pie, right? I want more, you have less. Abundance is about life in all its fullness. Together, 
we grow this. You have more in your life, I have more in mine. If you want an example of this, consider churches scrabbling over people, right? Oh, we've lost people to that church, and our church is growing, and yours is shrinking. Horrendous, horrendous. If you ever hear language like that, just leap on it. Just leap on it and shoot it. It's horrendous. Let's get together, let's serve the community, and let's grow the kingdom together, right? It's not a zero-sum game. The kingdom of God is about abundance. So how do we combat the religious spirit? I want to finish by getting deeply practical. Because this is what we're all facing it. We're all facing it every day. The antithesis of the religious spirit is the servant heart. The antithesis of the religious spirit is the servant heart. Back to our conversation with the Pharisees. Jesus is about to heal the man. Notice the question he asks, verse 5, and I love it. If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into the well on the Sabbath, will you not immediately pull it out? The man is to him like a child or an ox. The child, something incredibly precious. The ox, something incredibly valuable in that that economy. This man, Jesus says, is a part of my kingdom. This man is a part of my kingdom. I could disregard him for his disfigurement and his swelling, but I don't let him go. And Jesus doesn't let us go either. This is the servant heart. This is the spirit of God. Totally contrary to the religious spirit that says, oh, it's the Sabbath. I'm not going to heal him. Totally contrary. And then the teaching. Jesus takes a big chance and challenges these people on their social behavior. Invite people not for your own advantage, he says to the host. He dares to say to the senior Pharisee. I find this piece, I personally find this piece especially challenging. When I invite people to my house, it may not be to get an invitation back, but it's normally because I enjoy being with them. It's kind of nice. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But imagine if I actually did what Jesus said. Imagine if I actually did what Jesus said. The story's told of a young couple in... uh, in Bethel Church in Redding, California, who to their wedding reception invited the poor of the community. They didn't invite their friends and their family. They had a wedding reception for the poor of the community. Wow. I mean, just think about doing it at all, let alone doing it at your wedding, which is your day of days. That's the whole heart, right? That's an extraordinary thing to do. Can you imagine the impact Something like that. Can you imagine? I mean, in Winchester, can you imagine if someone did that? Wow. Hopefully the papers will be full of it. Maybe Satan will cast some sort of veil over it and we get the wrong story, but whatever, right? The battle's always on. And by the way, um, thank you to, to all of you who do the work of street pastors. That's a wonderful example of going out to touch the community Friday and Saturday nights in, uh, in, in Winchester and all those who support the street pastors and put up with the fact that they're exhausted the next day. Um, what a great way to win the kingdom. And there are many other examples too. And many of us are doing great things for the kingdom. I want to encourage you for that. I want to encourage you for that. It's so tough to do. It's so tough to do. I, I, got, I finally got one thing right. I finally got one thing right. Um, I'd been coaching someone, a senior executive in America, and he'd done... Um, 
he, he turned around. It wasn't that what he was doing at work got immensely better, although it did, but it was that his heart turned around. And um, he took me out for supper, actually, and bought an incredibly beautiful bottle of red wine. <laughs> said, said, thank you, Mike. Just want to say thank you. It's changed my life. I'm talking to a senior partner from McKinsey. He's a great friend, actually, a great friend and a great brother in Christ. And he said, and, and he, 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 he didn't know that. And he said, he said Mike, I'm looking at, at, at this exec, or who will remain nameless. He said, I'm, he said, honestly, brother, I'm not seeing much impact from your coaching. And I said, well. And so I showed him the email from the guy. And, and, and my friend Scott said, wow, Mike, he said, you just work on different KPIs different key performance indicators from the rest of us, right? In other words, the thing you're looking at, the thing you're measuring by, is different from the thing that most of the world measures. Because God measures the heart, and this guy's heart had shifted. Scott said, congratulations, that's all that matters. Well, he's a brother. Congratulations, that's all that matters. The world says this, Jesus said, but I say that. The humble will be exalted, the exalted will be humble. What the world sees as impressive, Jesus doesn't, and vice versa. Friends, you will encounter the religious spirit. Probably you'll encounter it even before today's out. It may try subtly to get you personally, or you'll find it in someone else, even a close friend. Remember, there's no blame. Don't blame them, don't blame yourself. That in itself is all part of the battle, by the way. Blaming is of the religious spirit, so don't do that, right? Don't blame. Respond as Jesus did. Respond in service. The servant heart will bring the kingdom, soul by soul, and silently. Amen.